Greetings, Race Community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Scott Roberts, who serves as Vice President of Development for the Oklahoma State University Foundation. And he said that Oklahoma Foundation CEO Blair Atkinson, a prior guest on the podcast, just walked by to give him a high five and a little bit of a pep talk. So welcome, Scott. She told me not to mess it up. So All right. All right. Well, I was just saying to Scott, uh, we have gotten to know each other over the years in the context of working in the advancement space, but classic example where I sort of met Scott when he was at, uh, at the time at UNLV. Uh, and so I've got some context for his work there and since, uh, but very little appreciation for what led Scott to the advancement sector in the first place. And so as we do with all of our guests, uh, and this is going to be a little bit of a curveball based on my my research on Scott, uh, we like to better understand your own higher education journey. And so I want you to take me back to junior year of high school. Who was that guy and what led you to Missouri State University in West Plains? Yeah, I, I probably wasn't one of the most studious uh, students out there, but um, had a had a dream to try to play college basketball, which led a lot of my decisions and um, ended up having an opportunity to receive a scholarship and play a little junior college ball and then on to College of the Ozarks down in Wait, Before we go there, favorite memory playing at Missouri State West Plains? Any any highlights or? Uh, you know, I think it was just the fellowship um, and the diversity of the group. Uh, we They recruited heavily out of um, Louisiana. And I'd never met anyone from Louisiana before. And so, um, you know, I learned about crawfish. I actually took a trip down there and went crawfishing with, with a bunch of the guys and just kind of opened my eyes to another part of the country that I wasn't familiar with. And so then that led to the College of the Ozarks. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, great, uh, great little college there in Branson, Missouri. Um, and, uh, you know, they were NAIA, so a smaller school and and just had a great time playing. And we went into the Elite Eight in the NAIA when I was there. And so got to experience that with the team and uh, just, you know, bonded over a lot of road trips in little vans. And uh, it was it was a great experience. Well, I will share, Scott, we didn't do a lot of travel when I was a kid, but one of our peak summer vacation experiences from Northeast Iowa was Puffing it all the way down to Branson to go to Silver Dollar City. So yeah. <laughs> uh, that's as close as I got to the College of the Ozarks. But uh, sounds like you had a bunch of success. And at any point during that part of the journey, did you get exposed to the alumni community or just the concept of uh, giving or uh, maybe more focused on sort of basketball at the time. Yeah, at, at West Plains, they, it was a really small community, you know, with a, with a junior college that they just loved basketball there. And it was, uh, uh, I, you know, we had adoptive parents uh, back then. And so got to meet a lot of the boosters and get to have dinner with them at their homes and meet their families. And that was really the first time I kind of put together that, oh, there's a group of people that care about students and they want them to have a great experience. Um, and they kind of took us in under our wings because we were all from all over in the country. And um, to get to watch that was really my first exposure to that. Um, College of Ozarks, um, you know, a much smaller private school. We we didn't interact too much with alumni and donors there. So it was different. And so it wasn't like you were graduating college saying, that's what I want to go do. Not at all. No. Nope. What did you do instead? Well, I, I uh, got uh, convinced that I should go to Europe for a couple of seasons and play a little basketball there, even though I really wasn't that good. I was just a large body. 
Um, but it was a fun experience and it opened my eyes to a couple different countries and uh, Where? Got, uh, Sweden and Germany. So that was a lot of fun and had that experience and then ended up. Which towns in Sweden? I, I've had some friends that have played in Europe and you, you often will end up in sort of not necessarily the, the primary, uh, you know, metro markets all the time. Yeah, Boris, uh, Sweden, and Vanna, Germany, uh, both pretty small little communities. They were aspiring to, to rise up through the ranks of their leagues um, and so decided to bring in some Americans to help. But um, you're right. Yeah, and I didn't really get to see much of the country while I was there. I was so focused on playing basketball. Uh, I kind of regret that aspect. I, I should have taken more time to explore, um, but I didn't. And so... Uh... I remember I had a good friend who played in Stuttgart, Germany. Uh, looks like that's sort of the other other corner of the country. But you were just kind of traveling around mostly to either. Basically, they were in country leagues. Right. Um, right. They were. Got it. And they probably issued you a $500 car to, to go along with it. Was it that sort of. Uh, oh, spirit? I've got a great story there, Brent. Uh, so okay. in Sweden, I had a car. But in Germany, when I arrived, they handed me a bicycle with a basket in front of it. And they said, well, here you go. This is how you're going to get from your apartment to practice. And I just kind of thought, like, it gets pretty cold here in Germany in the wintertime. And they're like, no, it'll be fine. You know, you'll be able to ride your bicycle. And so there was one moment where I'm on this bicycle and, you know, ice and cold and snow. And and I uh, tried to go over a curb, like down onto the street. And I literally head over, you know, the front end of the bicycle, bit the dirt, and I wasn't hurt, but it was probably more painful to my ego uh, that I knew I was going to have to tell somebody the story one day that, you know, I flipped over a bicycle in Germany. Yeah. We're probably going to lead with that in our podcast promotions. <laughs> Glad you shared it. <laughs> Great. Uh, Great. This sounds like, this sounds like a, a sad scene in Ted Lasso at this point, basically. <laughs> it feels like it. And, uh, and so spent the time Sweden, Germany, and then at some point decided, all right, uh, time to head back and, and sort of figure out what's next. Yeah. I, and I didn't really have, um, I didn't really know what I was going to do, to be honest. I knew I loved, uh, working with youth. I knew I loved kind of that non-for-profit sector. I'd spent a lot of my time, um, at YMCA's growing up and I felt connected to that mission and I felt connected and comfortable in that space. Um, and so I, I got back and I went to the three Ys, YMCAs that were in my vicinity, and I asked them all if they had any openings. And one, one place said, well, we'll pay you $5.50 an hour to lifeguard from 5 a.m. till noon. And I said, great, I'll take it. And then another place said, we'll give you like $6.75 an hour to be the evening shift supervisor and, you know, close down the facility. And I said, great, I'll take that. And so I literally worked at these two Ys part-time because I just wanted to get my foot in the door. And I, I love the mission. And I was convinced that if I just showed them my work ethic and my passion for, you know, doing a good job and, and the, um, the mission of the organization, that good things would happen. And they did. It wasn't too long. And another YMCA in Pittsburgh, Kansas, offered me a full-time job as a program director overseeing all of uh, sports and aquatics for youth and adult programs there. And so... I ended up landing in Pittsburgh, Kansas. I love that, man. Just uh, put yourself out there, go door to door once yep. in a while. I, I feel like that, uh, you, you know, I love LinkedIn and I love all the digital stuff, but it's it's really, you know, neat to 
to sort of hear stories like this. And, and then ultimately that sort of, I'm, I'm sure you can trace it back to us, you know, being able to talk today uh, back to then. So how do you uh, like, even when you're thinking about the YMCA and the mission um, we've actually spent a bunch of time at a, at a local YMCA with our kids and really uh, can be just pillars of, of communities and so forth. So just tell me about the, the people, the community. I mean, not everybody, you know, most people are coming to the YMCA focused on swimming or working out. They're not like dreaming big about the mission, but, but it sounds like you were able to sort of see both aspects of that. Yeah. I, uh, I just fell in love with it. Um, I, I, you know, in that role, I, I got to work a lot with volunteers. So I feel like that was really my first taste of learning about volunteerism and, and managing volunteers. Uh, you know, all these teams, they all needed coaches and they're typically parents. And so having those conversations with them, engaging them, um, giving them resources to be successful, uh, that was a big part of it. And I just, I appreciated, you know, their passion for helping these kids and watching these kids play and grow up. Um, and so that kind of just turned into like, I thought I wanted to run a YMCA. That was going to be my aspiration, uh, one day. And, uh, turns out one of my top volunteers there at the YMCA was also a volunteer with the Boy Scouts of America. And they said, you know, Hey, Scott, you should really look at Boy Scouts. Like a lot of the stuff you're doing here is it, it's transferable. It, it connects, you know, there's great mission, da, 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 da. And I thought, well, you know, I really don't know too much about the Boy Scouts, but, um, you know, I, I think I'm going to stick with a Y. And they said, well, here's the thing. The Boy Scouts will teach you about fundraising too. And if you're going to run a YMCA, you're going to need to learn about fundraising. It's going to be a part of a non-for-profit. It's critical. You're going to learn more about budgeting, more of the, the finance aspects of it as well. And they convinced me to explore it. Uh, and I did and, and ended up getting hired to be a district executive covering uh, parts of Missouri and Kansas, kind of up that border. Um, several several different counties uh, and working remote out of my home. And it did. It taught me, I mean, it really opened my eyes. You know, I've never asked for a gift before at this point in my career. I didn't really know what it meant. Um, and so I was put in charge of these counties and, and gathering the volunteers to do all. I mean, it's almost completely a volunteer-run organization. And, you know, the popcorn sales and then doing these community fundraising efforts in all these little country towns here in Missouri and Kansas. And it it was a great um, it was it was really great for me to learn uh, an aspect of non for profit work that I had never been exposed to before. And everybody listening is familiar with the Boy Scouts, but probably not that familiar with the business of an organization like that. So even saying you're running a region or a district, I mean, what is the the business apparatus at you know, or at least at the time, and what were the kind of main objectives you were focused on? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it was a, you know, it's a huge national organization. Our, our headquarters was out of Springfield, Missouri, and then we would have these districts, you know, but kind of between Springfield and up to, you know, middle of, of you know, uh, Kansas. And so it kind of covered a broad area. And, and I was responsible for this territory. And part of it was creating revenue. So the popcorn sales, if you think about those, you know, everyone sees the the, Boy, the Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts selling popcorn. That's That's revenue for the entire organization to operate. Um, create all the programming that is needed uh, to, to fulfill its mission. And so, it, you know, there's a little bit different pressure there that you're, you know, you're kind of on your own and you're accountable for increasing, you know, sales and increasing fundraising and having great programs that the parents still want to volunteer for and have the resources to feel like they're successful and, and give great experiences for these students. I, I had a lot of success in recruiting 
so I would travel to all these elementary schools throughout this entire area. And I would, you know, do the, the you know, hey, join the Cub Scouts, join the Boy Scouts. And um, I've always connected. Basically with like a, almost like an admissions rep. I, yeah, I, I had that I had that in my uh, in my skill set apparently, and I we saw numbers just exploding in that district. You know, I connect. I don't know whether it's because I'm tall and goofy or what, but the kids seemed to like me, and uh, I was able to to connect with them. And we our numbers just exploded during my time there, um, and so it, I saw some success and and uh, was acknowledged for that there, which was great. And then kind of similar story as the YMCA, my, my board chair of my district at, uh, at the, for the Boy Scouts of America in that district uh, was oversaw fundraising for Pittsburgh State University. And he approached me one day and said, Scott, I'm creating you know, a couple of positions. They're called major gift officers. Um, you're exactly the type of person we're looking for in this role. I would love for you to take a look at it. And in my head, I'm thinking major gifts like, like how much do people give away? I had no idea what that meant. And he kind of laughed at me. He's like, no, Scott, I'm going to open your eyes to a whole new side of philanthropy that you've never seen before. And so that was really uh, my first step into higher education fundraising and true philanthropy and what it meant, Uh, you know, less transactional maybe, and and really um, about making an impact. Pittsburgh State, as everyone listening knows, is not in or near Pittsburgh, uh, or at least the Pittsburgh you're thinking of. It is near Pittsburgh, Kansas, uh, which you've hinted at. And so take me back to like week one on the job where you're thinking $3,000 is a big gift. What do you actually walk into? What are you equipped with? And what were some of the early memories that maybe led you to believe that this could be your career? Well, one, I I learned that the, the gentleman that hired me um, ended up becoming one of my strongest advocates and, and strongest mentors I've ever had in my life. Um, he took me in under his wing. He provided a safe environment to make mistakes and to learn from. Uh, he, he had developed a really robust training uh, system for, for me. Um, that we hired two people, so it was myself and one other person. So we were going, kind of going through it as a team. Um, and it, you know, while you would expect a lot of pressure and those in the, in the beginning, there really, it really wasn't. It was a, you know, get out and start making cold calls, get out, make, make appointments, get visits, uh, get in front of people. Um, and you do all the right things and good things will start to happen. And so that first year was really just about being a road warrior. And, you know, I ended up spending uh, three years in that role, uh, spent a ton of time all throughout the United States, just getting in front of people that had never spoken to anyone at their alma mater again. And, you know, we had some incredible alumni at the time, uh, the recently, uh, or I guess at the time, the president of Walmart was a Pitt State, Pittsburgh State University graduate, uh, the president of Bridgestone Firestone. Um, There were some big, big companies that, we're small town farm kids that just went to the regional university and went on and did great things in their careers. And which was just amazing to me to think, you know, you think about these leaders, oh, they, they must have gone to Harvard or they must have gone to Yale or Brown or other, you know, prestigious Ivy League institutions. And yet we ended up having some of these, some of these incredibly success stories from a small regional university that most people have never heard of in Southeast Kansas. But in addition to those sort of big names within the community, I imagine it was 
sort of a millionaire, millionaire next door type crowd as well, uh, just kind of having grown up in the Midwest. And so you probably, uh, you know, uncovered wealth that people didn't maybe have any idea existed uh, and, and sort of just tell me about, I guess what you're describing is it, it was uh, an institution that had a lot of impact with people, but there maybe wasn't a deep tradition of engagement and philanthropy. And so you had something to build off of, but really we're, we're working pretty cold prospects um, relative to maybe what, what you have experienced today. Yeah, they, they really didn't have any major gift officers prior to um, me being hired there. And so there was a lot of untapped potential, a lot of kind of cool relationships. People loved that place and they had great college experiences, but just haven't been approached and spoken to anyone at the organization in perhaps 20, 30 years. Um, and so it was fun to uncover some of these. And there were no Ferraris or no Lamborghinis to make sure like you knew who you're talking to. It was Ford F-150s and, you know, you just old ones, rusty ones, rusty sometimes. and old. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I spent a lot of time on the highways just getting to, to sit down with these people. And, you know, when you meet them, it, it is just so heartwarming because it's they were very self selfless. They, they really just wanted to make an impact and hear, you know, what's the vision for the university and the direction they were going. And we had some great conversations and had some some success. And how often were they first meeting? I'd love to do something. Thanks for coming to see me. I've been basically waiting for somebody to acknowledge me versus they're maybe coming into the conversation the same way you came into the role, which is what's a big gift? 3,000, 5,000? You know, what is this philanthropy thing? Or maybe it was all of the above. Yeah, I think it was all of the above. Probably more, it was on me having a comfort level asking for, you know, 25,000 or 50,000 or 100,000 or a million. I had never done that before. And, you know, I think when you're a rookie, those feel like really big numbers because you're not used to playing with them. Right. And um, so it took me some time to uh, get there. And I remember, you know, when I first started, I had a list of phone phone numbers to call or emails to email. And I, I was nervous. Like I had I had this anxiety where. Like, I need to know everything about this person before I reach out to them. I need to know their, what if their kid answers? I need to know who the kid is. What's the spouse's name? I need to know that. Where do they work? Like, what's the historical giving? What college did they graduate? What year did they graduate? I felt like I needed to know all this. So if you could go back to that Scott right now and coach him up, what would you say instead? Don't worry about that stuff. Just go. Just go. Because those things will happen naturally through a conversation. And they really don't expect you to know all that stuff anyway. Um, and I would, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people just have that failure to launch syndrome. Um, and, you know, after 20 years of this, I can pick up the phone and have a conversation with anybody. I really don't need to know anything about them. Um, and I will work that into the conversations and, and they'll re reveal all those things to me anyway. Um, and so I feel extremely comfortable now, not at all how I did, you know, that first year in the job. And so then when you think about settling into the role and getting some sets and reps and getting more comfortable. And it sounds like amazing coaching and mentorship. And, and tell me more about that individual who, you know, who, who they were. Um, but ultimately it, it sounds like it really started to click and, uh, and, and then just kind of tell me about what, what inspired the next step. Yeah. So the, the gentleman, his name is Brad Hodson. Uh, he's an executive vice president at Missouri Southern State University in Joplin, Missouri. Um, 
he is probably on the path to be a university president one day, uh, but he was also a very young um, uh, leader in development back whenever I first started. So he was, you know, he was like 40 years old at the time um, and has, you know, tons of experience now and has grown in his role as well. So I, I really admire him. Uh, I wanted to, you know, just follow in his footsteps along the way. Um, three years into the role, he was promoted for me to be in there three years in my role there. He was promoted to vice president for advancement for the, the university, which left a vacancy there. So think of an, an associate VP level type of job, but there at a smaller institution, it was called the director of university development. And it oversaw the entire development operation. I think we had a team of 10 or so. So I applied for that. They did a national search. They brought in you know, an outside candidate and me. And um, they ended up selecting me internally. So uh, I, I had an opportunity, gosh, and I, I was probably like 34 maybe at the time. And now I have 10 staff between the ages, you know, mid 60s to, you know, 22, never have managed a person in my life, had no idea what I was doing um, and scared to death. Um, Fortunately, uh, my team that were there, you know, I'd worked with them for three years already. They had gotten to know me. They had a level of comfort in my, my uh, approach to things. And they were my biggest advocates. And I think were instrumental in, in um, giving Brad confidence to promote me internally, even though I, I lacked uh, the managerial experience that was required for the job. I love that. And, and then ultimately, that led you to UNLV. It did. Yeah. And, and it was funny when he hired me back as a major gift officer, he said, listen, there's so much potential in this career, so much growth opportunity. Um, I want you to give me five years. Give me five years to develop and grow you professionally, have some success, and I'll help you go anywhere in the country you want to go. Because you're going to have to probably leave to get promoted. Like that's just the nature of this business. There's not that many spots, you know, in this, you know. And so I kind of went into it with that attitude, like, okay, I'm going to give this guy five years and I'm going to work hard. I want to, you know, break records. I want to do things that, you know, show that, you know, I'm, I'm working hard and I'm trying hard. I ended up giving him six. I, I, I was in that role for three years because we were wrapping up a campaign there. I wanted to help close that campaign out and, and show, you know, that success for the institution. And then he helped me. He's like, you want to go public? Do you want to go private? Do you want to go small? Do you want to go large? You should explore all of these things. And I did. I threw my name in some hats that I didn't even know if I really wanted or not, but I just was exploring like what's what's a small private look like versus a large public. Um, and I ended up landing at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Uh, didn't really have any any relationships out there, hadn't had only been out there once before. And um and kind of took a leap of faith uh, as an associate vice president for development, overseeing their entire development operation, um, which was scary because they had just been hit with the economic you know, crash of Vegas and the housing market there. I think there were only a handful of development officers even left. They had just they had a massive attrition, um, you know, folks leaving and and they really needed a complete rebuild there. I mean, this also kind of sounds like a movie plot, though, because you go from rural Kansas farmers and F-150 to the City of Lights or perhaps Sin City. I mean, it's a very different dynamic. Uh, I mean, just cultural adaptation. I mean, how do you get to know the donor community? How do you kind of change your style? Or maybe you didn't really have to because people aren't that different. I mean, what are your reflections on that? Culture was very different. Um, it, it took a while to kind of adjust. Um, 
Um, you know, you pull into the parking lot during a board meeting and, and it's full of uh, Porsches and, and some Lamborghinis, some some Maseratis, you know, just cars that you don't, I've never really seen. Any, any rusty F-150s or no? No, okay. not one, not one. McLarens, you know, you name it. Um, it they were there. And um, I, I remember one in particular, we were recruiting a board member and he pulled up in a Rolls Royce with a driver who carried his suitcase into the building, um, which just like, and I'm like, why is this guy following you with a suitcase? And then he sits down and the guy hands him the suitcase. <laughs> I'm just like, what is happening right now? <laughs> so it's just, it was just another world to me, you know, that I'd never seen before. Um, you know, but great people. The, the thing that that I think surprises that would surprise people about Las Vegas is it is a real melting pot. Um, people come from all over. There are really no the, the the number of locals there is so small that to it's like seeing a unicorn if you see a local that has three generations of family members that were raised in Las Vegas. It, you know, it's just not an old city, and there it's very transient, and so it, it's just different. And then the other big difference is the major donors were were primarily not alumni. They were people who had made, you know, had graduated from other universities that had moved to Las Vegas because maybe they were in the hospitality industry or land development industry, which were two of the kind of booming industries there. Um, and so they got, you know, they understood philanthropy because they, you know, our 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 business school was named after someone who went to Harvard. Our our, our, our urban affairs school, you know, that guy graduated from Yale. Uh, our law school, that guy graduated from Utah. And so, you know, they just came into Las Vegas and they're like, we need a great university to, to be a great city. So and almost so, an inherent, like everything is corporate foundation relations in a certain sense. And, and you know, top employers of UNLV grads, uh, big in education, but then it's MGM Resorts, it's Caesars, Wynn, the Venetians. So there's really this deep connection from a talent pipeline perspective um, which it sounds like was then reflected in your donor and, and maybe leadership community. Yeah, that's right. Um, any, up until this point in the journey, like any just visits that were just like, what, are, what is the, the uh, flipping over the bicycle equivalent of visits? Like any just visits gone wrong, like, I don't know, travel disasters or you know find yourself out in the in the boonies at at some point like a, it's it's fun sometimes to get um, those reactions sure uh, yeah absolutely there were some of those um gosh i'm trying to think which ones i want to share that's um, fair that's fair <laughs> be, i had i had probably judicious. one of the yeah what's up i said be judicious yeah yeah no i i, I had probably my creepiest one i'll share um all right, folks, he's leading with creepy. I didn't see that coming. I, I yeah. So um, I had a development officer who had built a relationship with a gentleman who was a large um, music, I guess, music art collector, you know, signed guitars. Think about like he, he had been exposed to a lot of professionals through his career. And so he had a lot of memorabilia. I guess that's the right term, memorabilia, uh, you know, platinum records that have been signed by really cool bands and and so he had invited um, this development officer to come take a look at his home. Something there triggered. And she said to me, like, Scott, I don't really feel 100% comfortable going alone. Like, would you mind accompanying me and just taking a look at me uh, with me um, to see what this gentleman has in his collection? I said, sure. Yeah, sounds great. Well, 
uh, got to the home, you know, he's starting to show us around a little bit, you know, these cool sign things. And I'm quickly realizing that everything is personalized to him. It's all, you know, his name to so-and-so, you know, from Aerosmith or, you know, whoever, this is our guitar, you know, whatever it is. So it was just, I'm like, I don't know that there's a lot we can do. <laughs> Everything is personal. Like we can't sell it. There's, and it's not certified. Like, I don't know. And another thing that people probably don't know about Las Vegas is uh, very few homes have basements. Um, there's something called caliche in the ground with just like a layer of concrete uh, below the sand. And it's just, it's very difficult to dig down deep for a basement. Well, this gentleman said like, well, I have more down in my basement. And all of a sudden, my thought is like, wait a minute, you have a basement? Like, people don't have basements in Las Vegas. You know, so I'm just going with it. Uh, the development officer and I just kind of looked at each other like, this is kind of strange, but okay, let's go with it. Well, we get down there and get yeah, more stuff. And then he he um, uh, decides to share his, his surround sound stereo system with us. Um, and there was like one chair in the middle of the room that looked pretty sketchy. And then a you know, like a big screen TV. And, and he's like, now listen, you, you have to sit in the chair in the middle of the room so you can really get the acoustics of this entire basement. Like I've got the speakers all around and I'm like, I'm not sitting in that chair. Like that is not a cool looking chair. Um, and the development officer said the same thing. And anyway, I quickly put together an exit strategy. I'm like, we need to get out of this basement right now. And we still laugh about this, you know, and it's like, that was a little sketch. The Las Vegas basement experience. Well, appreciate you sharing. And uh, yeah, I mean, look, you, you don't do thousands of visits and not have some of them that, uh, that stand out for sure. Appreciate yeah. you sharing. Uh, you had the opportunity to head out other side of the country, University of Connecticut Foundation, uh, not too long before the pandemic, so complicated period, but would uh, kind of love any reflections from that um, experience as well. Yeah, wow. I mean, what an opportunity to, to go from a a a, um, a UNLV, which you know is you know very transient in nature, big city lights, lots of flash, um, but also not necessarily ranked as you know one of the top research universities in the country to an opportunity to go to a University of Connecticut foundation where, you know, they're a top 25 public re research university. You know, I'm, I'm going from, you know, one, one culture to a very different culture in New England. Um, you know, I've never really been on a sailboat before or a yacht or anything like that. When we, you know, we had experiences where donors would uh, allow us to host others on their, on their, uh, on their yachts and so forth, which was just kind of eye-opening and, something new and different uh, for me and just had a had an opportunity to partner with an incredible president and come in at the same time. Um, and he and I uh, did a lot of really great work over a couple of years there. Um, it was a lot of fun. I got to see a whole new part of the country, meet some incredible people um, and, and, and be part of a private foundation that, that operated completely independently. So at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, it was, it was switched. We were all state employees there was a foundation, but the foundation didn't really have any employees. We were serving in that role as state employees, you know, doing the fundraising. And so to go from a place now that is was a private 501c3 that employed everyone, provided health care for everyone, 
um, and you know, reported up to you know the foundation president as I served in that role was just a very also very different not just culture but just uh, a model of fundraising that that I'd never you know been a part of before. So it was a great experience to to see that and be part of that. And then you headed out to Stillwater in late 2021 to join Blair and the team. And uh, tell me about the experience so far. And it sounds like uh, engaging with the development committee has been uh, one of the projects you've been pretty focused on. Yeah, I, I came out here. Um, this feels kind of like my old stomping grounds. I actually grew up about two and a half hours from here into, into Southwest Missouri. Um, so I'm, I'm a highway away from uh, where my old stomping grounds were as a kid. And so it this area felt very familiar to me and, and the people were very similar to the type of people I grew up, you know, farmers, um, people that, you know, uh, lived out in the country and so forth. And so um, I joined the team here and it's been it's been so fun. Um, it's uh, we've, we've really charged the development committee to think differently about their role. They they probably have never had um, uh, uh, directives uh, like what I've tried to provide for them to, to help us raise money. And I think they've always wondered, like, how can we help? How can we do more right. for the university? Like a lot of development committees do. And sometimes it's hard to know how to quite engage them. Um, but I, I had a great development committee chair this past the past couple of years who was willing to do whatever it took. And so first thing was, I asked them uh, to recommend uh, increasing the minimum giving level for the entire board. Um, so we have two groups. We have a, a board of trustees that are really the governance, and then we have a board of governors that select the trustees that are much larger. We, there's, there's almost 400 governors. Uh, so it's a little bit hard to manage, um, but they're, you know, they're min minimum, some were, some were great donors, and then some really didn't have a lot of giving history. And they weren't recruited because necessarily they would become donors, it was just, hey, we want you to get more involved in the university, uh, join our board. And so that wasn't quite the philosophy that I thought would be um, uh, best for the foundation and the university in the long run. So I said, let's, let's talk about minimum giving expectations and start inching that up as we gear up for uh, the next campaign for OSU. And so they agreed, uh, they passed that resolution and, and that is gonna be the new expectation going into the next fiscal year. In addition, um, I said, there, there's more. You can still help even more than that. And let's have a conversation about um, our board members' uh, estates. And let's see if we can't rally some of our development committee members to have a conversation with governors that they are friends with or have relationships with to see if they ask them if they'd be willing to have a conversation with myself or someone on my team about their estate. Because that, that's a way that it really creates that long, that generational support to the institution over a long period of time that will be critical for their future. And so they did. And we had probably um, 12 to 15 individuals that said, yes, come talk to me about my estate. And so we've already closed a few of those gifts and we're, we look forward to doing more even next year. Wow. And so, look, I think there's always this tension around, hey, do you want our advice or do you want money? Do you want uh, perspective? And it sounds like just being a little bit more direct has been a big part of the focus and, and being, again, sort of unafraid to just yeah. make that ask and, um, and get people to rally around it. Well, I think a lot of us just think that volunteers should know what to do or should know what the role is or should know how to help. 
And they really don't. They're just people like us. And some have served in volunteer capacities before, some haven't. And so to really outline, like, this is what we need, black and white, like, help us with this. This will move the needle for the organization. Um, you have influence uh, with friends. You have influence with colleagues. You have influence with uh, your peers that can really help us. And, and just being frank and asking them to help. One of the other um, anecdotes that you shared prior to this conversation is uh, one that strikes me as just being so compelling about a donor that specifically wanted to eliminate debt for uh, a student. And, and, and a, you know, I think there is an education degree component of it. Just tell me more about why that stands out to you, given all of the gift experiences that you've been a part of. Yeah. And we actually had the his second, the, since I've been here, the second time he surprised the student was yesterday. So I got to see that again yesterday. But my first year here, um, gosh, there was not a dry eye in the entire room. And they had told the student like, hey, we need you to come, you know, either be a pan, be on a panel about, you know, what it's like being at OSU or something. So we completely tricked the student into arriving, which was hard because sometimes students don't really want to go do that. And so they had to work a little extra hard to get the student there, which uh, was interesting. And so then there was a panel, the dean was there, the donor and the student, and they just kind of start talking and, and the donor uh, set, turns to the student and says, you know, um, I actually have something I need to, to tell you. And the student's like, okay, yeah, well, what's going on? And he said, I wanna eliminate all your student debt. And today I'm doing that. And of course, when you hear that as a, you know, whatever, 20 year old, 21 year olds, you know, you have no idea, like, is this for real? Am I being punked? You know, that's, they actually said that, you know, and, um, and he's like, no, like, and then we had to get another, somebody in to speak and say, hey, this is what's happened. The donor was uh, so soft-spoken and kind, you know, didn't really get into it. And they're like, this person's a donor to OSU. He cares deeply about students going into education. Um, he wants you to start your career off with zero debt uh, after graduating from here. And uh, so consider it wiped out. And the student just started crying. Everyone in the room, I mean, there were probably 15 people behind the cameras, you know, and the lights watching all of this because we recorded it. Everyone was crying. I'm like wiping the tears away too. And I'm like, and I left that day just like, this is why I do this work. This is right. why I'm in, I'm called to do this type of work. It just felt so good. And then the girl, like, can I call my mom? You know, calls her mom. Her mom starts crying on the phone. I got to call my dad. Her dad's like, what is going on? Who's this person? What are you talking about? And he starts crying. And it just was the coolest feeling. Um, it's almost like, I don't know if you've seen those football videos of the head coach saying, hey, call up a walk-on and saying, you got a full scholarship. And everyone's just going crazy. Yes. This is the academic version of that. It was so cool. And, and so how, I mean, how do we learn from this and apply it? Because I, I was just doing some, some researching. It looks like the, the median debt load of graduating students from Oklahoma State is in the 15 to 25,000 range. I saw a couple different figures, but just for like round number purposes, we're not talking about principal gift level requirement to go and literally change somebody's life or give them a kickstart as they, you know, graduate to instill philanthropy. And every student is a beneficiary of philanthropy, the facilities, scholarship, ways that they don't even realize or appreciate. But when you contrast like the student's understanding for the impact of philanthropy 
when they're walking through it, faculty, funding, et cetera, et cetera, versus the student you just described and how specific and clear her introduction to philanthropy in that way was, it kind of just makes you want to do that for every student. Um, but we can't, or we we don't currently, or or maybe we could, but it's like, how many more donors would step up and say, yeah, I'd like to eliminate the debt of one student. And I, I love to feel that reaction. And there's a balance because, you know, you can't put every student necessarily on a pedestal and some people want to be more private, but it just seems like so emotional. Like, you know, the tears lead to generosity. That isn't always felt in your standard appeal. Right. And so, I mean, part of our, you know, strategy on this is we want everyone to see this, right? Because if you don't see it, you can't, it's hard to describe it. It's not the same me talking about it versus you watching that girl crying and, and seeing the impact that he's had on her life. Uh, so we record them. We push them out on social media. We show them to our board um, and, and get it out in front of people because it's, it's inspiring. And you're right. It, you see it. You're like, well, I can do that. You know, and it's just opening people's eyes to the impact that they can actually have. Love it. Love it. Uh, well, tell me just about the state of affairs at the foundation. What are you focused on now? What are you excited about? Where do you see things he heading from here? Yeah, we, we have a university president that's uh, wrapping up her second year on the job. She is uh, she has pushed out a strategic plan for the university that really outlines how uh, OSU is going to be um, uh, great and how, you know, uh, we're going to be leading the nation. And there's pockets of things we do really, really well. She's doubling down on those things and saying, listen, we need an infusion, investment, and focus on areas that we can be excellent in, areas that we can be leading the country in. And so that's articulated in the strategic plan for the university. Uh, she's created some imperatives that, listen, we want to increase our enrollment. We want to retain our students better. Uh, we want to graduate the ideal cowboy. And what does that look like? What does the ideal cowboy look like coming out of OSU? Um, and so there's all these strategies in there. They focus, uh, they've created some working groups uh, led by some faculty fellows to dig in. And what are the strategies or the tactics that need to occur to be successful in these strategies? And so they're working through that right now. This will end up being or developing the goals for our future campaign. So we're in the planning phase of our next campaign here at OSU. Last year was our first year. We're gonna have, uh, this is second year. We're gonna do one more planning year uh, next year and then roll into our quiet phase. And um, so it's exciting to see like these buckets starting to evolve of how do we focus our fundraising efforts, inspire our donors to be part of something great um, and show that impact and, and, the, and the difference it can be made um, uh, with their investments. Love that. Love that. Um, are you hiring? Tell me about how folks should be in touch, uh, stay connected with you. I know you're active on LinkedIn. Any any other recommendations? Yeah, I think, you know, who's not hiring right now? Um, I think I just heard recently that there's never been a time in this industry where there's been such a demand for professional um, advancement folks and so few in the in the pool. And it's, you know, it's not going away, right? We need more folks. I think we probably have done a poor job in our industry promoting this to uh, recent graduates or getting people in the pipeline with zero experience. So one of the things we've taken on is a, is a path to grow our own uh, advancement professionals and hire them with zero experience. I, I'm looking for people who volunteered with the 
OSU Student Foundation Board. I'm looking at our cowboy callers. I'm looking at students who are in leadership roles in the business school or the College of Education or wherever that they have the bones to be great development officers, but may not even be aware of this industry. Um, I think that we're missing a lot of people that get a, get in on another path early and then they can never go entry level again because they've got a family or they've got debt or they've got all these other things that are preventing them for, from getting in the pipeline. And so I'm really proud that we've taken this step. You know, we've hired some new DXO officers, kind of exposing them into the annual giving path um, and other things too. So yeah, we're hiring just like everybody else. I I'll tell you the, the one thing that sets, I think sets us apart from a lot of organizations is just the culture here. Um, uh, Blair Atkinson, who was one of your guests, as we talked about before, she's really set the stage for having an incredible culture at this organization. We, she, uh, the, the head of HR and myself did, did a presentation at the last case conference in district four that, that we take, we take culture over experience. And I kind of got that, that, that title from, you know, thinking about, uh, college sports or, or high school sports where, Hey, I'll take someone with work ethic versus talent. Um, that was certainly my case as an athlete. I had a great work ethic, but maybe I couldn't jump as high as everyone else, or maybe I wasn't as fast as everyone else. And that that kind of phrase spoke to me. And as I think about who we hire, I, I want people who care deeply, understand the mission, um, uh, respect one another, um, and appreciate you know a, a diverse group of folks with different ideas and different thoughts and different backgrounds uh, to work for, work together to get get the organization moving forward. I love that, Scott. Great summary. And we certainly feel that uh, culture, passion, commitment, collaboration, vibe in, in the work that we've done together over the years. And uh, very happy for you and, and the team as you continue uh, during this clear growth phase um, for the, the foundation and the university. So thanks so much uh, for, for taking us uh, down memory, memory lane with also an eye towards the future and, and really look forward to, uh, to stay in touch. Thanks so much, Brent, for having me. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Have a great day. You bet. Raise community. Don't hesitate to reach out to Scott on LinkedIn. Let him know that you heard this episode. And with that, I'll conclude today's recording with Scott Roberts, who serves as Vice President of Development for the Oklahoma State University Foundation. Take care.